let's let's do point counterpoint on the on the right? discussion at the end. I'll I'll say something and you just completely discredit everything I say after the fact. Well, isn't that kind of just how we're expecting this to go in general? Hop into our own routine. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Solar Review Podcast. I'm Rachel Shapira, Director of Residential Financing, and I'm taking the reins from Tom Miller today. He's listening in as producer, so thanks, Tom, for letting me take over the Baywa Airwaves. So with that, I'm excited to dive into the exciting world of residential financing with my two esteemed colleagues, Greg Fisher from Goodleap and Robin Kankel from Spruce. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Rachel. And, and by the way, congratulations to the Baywatch Solar Review podcast. I understand that you guys are now the number three most listened to podcast behind Joe Rogan and Adam Carolla. That's very exciting. <laughs> congratulations. Thanks for having me. Glad to be back. Glad to have you. Both Robin and Greg have been on the podcast uh, back in August of 2021. It's some really helpful insights on how installers can best work with solar financiers. But let's get down to business today. Let's talk briefly about the recent trends in residential financing. What are you both seeing these days? Why don't we start with Robin? What's on your radar? What's going on in residential financing? I think there are a lot of things happening in the residential solar uh, industry right now. I I know there's new entrants that are coming into the lending space. We have more roofers who are also getting into uh, the solar side of the business. We're seeing new technologies like solar roof. And we're also seeing, I think, a lot more bundling of non, you know, I ITC items, more home improvement uh, into the solar loans. Our proposals have gotten much more quick and efficient, which may be a double-edged sword for the consumer versus the commission for the salesperson. System maintenance and O&M is really becoming, I think, a big trend, at least you know from my point of view. I mean, I think that we'll also continue to see more acquisitions and further consolidation. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that as well, Robin. How about you, Greg? What's on your mind? If I were to keep the two bullet points, merger acquisition, new entrance, right? to so the landscape uh, is changing or evolution of existing players that are in the space somewhere in the downstream value chain, trying to evolve and, and maybe offer something that they previously have not offered or it's not usually thought of in their core competency. The second trend that we are seeing that we know is coming that we haven't felt the impact yet, but we will, are interest rates. Mm -hmm. So we are going to see upwards of nine consecutive quarters uh, if interest rate increases as it stands today, or at least what they're forecasting, with potentially uh, some of those quarterly interest rate increases being as much as a half point, which traditionally when the Fed does adjust interest rates, it's usually no more than a quarter point, hasn't happened more than 20 years, it could be coming. So that is is interesting. I think it may not be the right word to capture uh, what we're keeping our eye on, but there definitely will be an impact and not necessarily an negative impact, but there will definitely be an impact on the downstream residential solar space. Thanks for that point, both of you. You brought up a lot of excellent trends that I'm also anticipating um, and others I'm talking to are anticipating. We just have such great insights. But I'd like to actually tag on the point Greg just brought up for a moment, diving into the interest rate conversation. As everyone's aware, low interest rate loans have been leading the residential solar market for many years. What do you think is going to happen to products like this? And what do you think kind of ripple effects do we anticipate seeing in the industry if interest rates rise as everyone is expecting? Greg, I'll start with you since you brought this up. So I don't expect or anticipate that every platform is going to react or respond exactly the same. And and the reason for that is um, they all have different capital providers. They all have different covenants with their capital. They've all gone about securing capital in different ways. So I I think you have to look more broadly uh, at typically what happens uh, to other asset classes and and cost of goods sold historically when you see interest rates rise. I think the, the, the misconception is that rising interest rates 
and loans maybe at a 299 or a 399 as opposed to a 199 or a 149 slows the growth of the industry. That, that has not been the experience, at least in the last uh, five or six years, when loans have really become the preferred or dominant uh, method of acquiring a solar system. So if you look back to 2018, most of the quote unquote low APR loan products in the marketplace were, were 399s, primarily 20 or 399s. The industry grew 35 or 36% that year, right? So if you look at kind of how we, we, we view commodity adjustments in pricing, as we're seeing right now with materials, the industry adapts. And, and quite frankly, that's still a relatively low cost to the homeowner. And in most markets in the US, there still will be a value proposition that gives them an option or an opportunity to save money, at least have a lower obligation to their loan payment than they do to their utility company day one. Now that's a really broad stroke that I've just kind of painted there. Some platforms may have enough capital secured at a lower rate already to carry them through for a few months. Some may decide that they want to keep a low APR product in place. And therefore, they would have to make adjustments to their program fees to not only help offset the risk of that loan, but also what the, the, the spread is going to be between the capital provider uh, and what they lend that for. So th there's a lot of different levers that you can pull. So I don't think everybody's going to respond in the same way. There will be an adjustment period, but I just don't feel like it's going to be this, this massive crash that happens in the space where nobody knows how to sell a slightly higher APR because the cost of capital has gone up. So Greg is not foreseeing doom and gloom. Robin, how about you? No, I don't really see doom and gloom either. You know, I think the days of the ultra low APRs are over and they should be. It was fun while it lasted. And, you know, the 0.99s and the 1.99s were really, you know, introduced as a response to COVID. Um, and so it was a way to incentivize customers to continue to invest in solar. Lower APC costs and longer terms impact homeowners more than optically low APRs. And so low APRs, we all know are kind of gimmicky, but it it is an effective sales tactic. You know, a system cost rising, it's cutting into margins, but there's also a lot of fluff in the EPC um, and that causes prices to rise too. So, you know, I've heard from installers who are starting to incentivize their sales reps to sell higher APRs so that they are then lowering their dealer, lender, or program fees. That's interesting. And that leads into who do you think you know, what kind of homeowner do you think is best served by a higher APR product? You know, if you're an installer who's newer to solar lending and you're trying to figure out what blend of program fees and APR is right for you or which one is right for each homeowner, how would you recommend that they direct clients to a product that's right for them? What would you look for in a homeowner to say this homeowner is better served by a low APR and this homeowner is better served by a high APR? Robin, can I start with you on this one? Sure. The short term higher interest, of course, is going to be for customers who know that they're going to pay off their loan early. It may also be for people who are close to retirement age, who are trying to fix their bills before and to shed costs. Um, so essentially forecasting futures, low APR and longer term, longer tenor, those customers are looking to simply save money on their utility bills. So the longer the term, the lower the payment. So just, you know, those customers that plan to stay in their home for a really long time, or just really, you know, trying to knock as much off of their utility bills every month as possible. Those are really who those low APR customers are, are, are targeting. Thanks. Anything to add, Greg? No, it's an interesting question. Most finance platforms do not market to the consumer directly. So we do use our, our contracting partners and by extension, their sales force to reach the homeowner, to offer these, these services and products. 
And so finance companies spend a lot of time training these sales forces uh, for compliance reasons, but also how do you help direct the homeowner to the best solution for them? So uh, I agree with what Robin says. I think the challenge is how do we make sure that the, the tip of the spear, if you will, is making sure that they're educating the homeowner on what the options are and, and the differences in why a higher APR uh, product might be better for them based on whatever their, their, their personal situation uh, might be. I'm going to circle back to something. And again, I don't have a crystal ball, but when we talk about what happens if, if APRs go up, and I've, I've seen a lot of chatter and on some of these sales platforms on Facebook and other mediums where you know there's a lot of speculation. And um, I saw one user say, well, expect your, your, your program fees to go up as well. And I think it's just important that people remember that that program fees that every finance platform has that is a part uh, of how they they get capital from the capital providers to way for the capital providers to secure essentially an unsecured asset. You know, it is a, a, a sliding scale based on the, the risk and the yield of that loan product. And so long-term low APR products do have higher risk associated with them traditionally in other asset classes. And therefore the securitization of that loan does cost a little more. If the market does shift to uh, a 299 or a 399 medium, okay? And that's speculation. That doesn't necessarily mean that the, the, the program or the quote unquote dealer fees associated with those products go up, quite frankly, because according to capital providers, there might be less risk and there might be slightly more potential yield if that loan does go over the period of 20 to 25 years. So that is somewhat of the stabilizing force here. And also why I don't necessarily foresee uh, a massive shift if we do see that the cost of capital continues to go up and therefore the capital providers have to take different products uh, through platforms such as, as Goodleap to the market. I will add, and tell me if you agree on this, I do anticipate the cost of solar lending going down over time, or maybe the trust of it, this, of solar as an asset class is going to be continue to rise as the you know oldest solar loans mature and as the long-term performance continues to pan out because homeowners have you know been defaulting at low rates and paying their loans back at very high rates. And I think that the more time passes, the more we're going to be able to prove to capital markets that this is a reliable asset class. And that may offset some of the winds that are moving the cost of lending in the other direction. Is that that's, overly optimistic? No, I mean, that, that's the long-term plan, right? Um, the first solar system to a homeowner I ever sold, I, I won't say when, because then everyone will realize just how, how old I am. Uh, the solar panel that we, we procured for that project was 167 watts at $4.50 per watt. Panels recently were procured for less than 50 cents a watt, right? So- Yes, that's very much the plan for the capital providers. It's very much the plan for the, the platforms such as, as, as Goodleap. When we can prove that the asset class is safe and it's predictable and it does have a return, this is what people need to remember. These institutions are taking deposits and investments from individuals or other institutions, and they're looking for places to put it so that they can get a yield and a return on that investment so they can help grow that portfolio for the individual or, or those institutions. So as we continue to evolve, um, as you continue to see companies that do securitizations that have really high ratings, as you continue to see companies kind of get creative with how they can service homeowners after the fact to ensure low default rates, delinquency rates, uh, low escalations, all that contributes to over time driving the cost of that capital down because you truly now can take what is an unsecured asset and maybe it doesn't need quite as much security in it as it previously did. And so take that $4.50 per watt panel and now it's 50 cents a watt. I mean, over time, that is what all platforms are, are, are moving towards and, and striving for. We do not get 
the entire program fee. Mosaic doesn't, Sunlight doesn't, Dividend doesn't, right? We perform a service, we all have a marketplace, we bring people together. I like to joke with people that, you know, we could be distributors, if you will. That's how that's how strong our margins are. We just have to be really good <laughs> at it and build it at scale uh, and be able to provide uh, a lot of really good service to a lot of end users and a lot of contractors. Absolutely. Robin, is there anything you want to add there? Or do you want to- Oh, no, that was great. No, no further comments from me. Awesome. So let's talk tactics for a few minutes. I think solar contractors' ears will, will perk up here a bit when I ask Robin and Greg to tell us, what are the common mistakes you're seeing contractors make with residential financing? I also want to hear if you have insight into any opportunities um, on the horizon, but let's just start with the small or big mistakes you'd both like to flag for the audience when contractors are working with solar financiers. Robin, can I start with you here? Sure. I have a, a laundry list here, but uh, we'll try to keep it short and concise. <laughs> I think, you know, number one, like I'm still seeing misleading marketing, um, free solar, you know, you were over that. And so I think it's time to start cleaning that up. Installing solar on sites that are not optimal for solar. So with a lot of shading, north facing planes, really terrible roof tilt systems, subcontracting without proper QAQC of third party installers. Uh-huh. This can be very costly and it can, it can cost to your relationship with your finance company. I'm also seeing that dealer fees are not being calculated correctly. I think this is a really big problem in the industry. The correct calculation is cash price divided by one minus the dealer fee. It's not cash times the dealer fee. And so that change in the margin can affect the overall profitability of of a project. I don't think that we're forecasting very well either, especially to our distributors. So, you know, as we can see, we're seeing a lot of support supply constraints. There's a lot of high turnover. So training is the key to retention Um, and making sure that your sales reps actually understand how to sell financing and be able to calculate all of those different variables for the customers. Rolling non-ITC items into the loans. There's, you know, specific loan products out there that allow for this type of thing. So just make sure that if that is the case, that you are using the correct product. And I think too, like that, you know, we're not as an industry really trying to push down the sales cost um, and some of those, you know, fluff that gets added into the the overall loan. And so I think long-term that hurts us as an industry, because as compared to Europe, like they are sub $2 a watt for the entire EPC with install and their labor costs are higher. And let me see one more thing. And I think, yes, the last thing is always leading with the lowest APR because that may not be in the best interest of the customer. Yes, it's probably easier to sell, but it's not necessarily, again, in the best interest of the customer. I'll hand it over to you, Greg. I mean, you didn't leave anything left for me, Robin. (laughs) Um, As it pertains to financing, I think Robin, you know, touched on a few things. I personally spend a lot of time with uh, with small, mid-sized uh, installers, um, whether they're new, whether they're growing. Maybe they do ten or twelve installs a month, and they're completely content doing that. And the conversation we always have is, "Hey, let's stop thinking six days down the road. Let's start thinking six months down the road. Let's not think what's happening next month. Like, what does the next year look like?" And, and the reason for that is, you know, a lot of these small to mid-sized installers, it's it's uh, Anomalous too when we talk about you know the U.S. economy and everyone says that small and medium businesses, local businesses, you know, are the heartbeat of, of the U.S. economy, the little foundation. And I and I, I believe that long term, firmly, uh, the small, uh, mid-sized regional installers will serve that same role in our industry. So when Robin talks about 
you know, are we just chasing the lowest APRs? Are we just chasing the lowest program fees? One thing to keep in mind is when you work with a finance provider as the contractor of record, the, the liability really is with you, the contractor. Was the system sold compliantly? Is the contract, you know, fair and reasonable? Did you live up to the terms and conditions of your contract? Um, did you get the system operational? I mean, all, all those things. And if you are working with a finance platform um, and, and you willfully neglect to meet your obligations or you're not able to, you possibly could have the liability uh, of that loan on, on, on your company. And so the idea is that we're making sure that we're, we're thinking about long-term and how do we do things the right way? And it's not just about today, but what is happening tomorrow? Are, are we working? with sales organizations that are uh, acting honorably and morally and ethically or ethically, excuse me, or is it just like I can make the quick buck? And that kind of dovetails into less of a, a finance related issue, but something that we are constantly having conversations about now. And it probably plugs into supply chain at some point, Rachel, which I'm sure we're going to get to. You know, Robin talks a lot about the fluff and the EPC costs. A lot of small mid-sized installers now are have really having a tough time because as the uh, module price increases have taken effect, uh, the commodity price increases, obviously freight costs four times as much now for a manufacturer to ship product overseas than it did a year and a half ago. A lot of these contractors are absorbing that cost because they are deathly afraid to have to go back to their sales partners and renegotiate or adjust the price so that these, these costs get passed through. And, and so my concern is, that that is a short-term solution and, and probably doesn't have a happy ending for a lot of these contractors if they're going to get squeezed by 15, 20 cents a watt uh, on every project. And I don't know any other product right now where the costs have gone up significantly. I bought a steak last week at the grocery store. It used to be eight bucks. Now it's 12 bucks. The grocer did not say, hey, sorry about that. I'll, I'll eat the extra $4, right? right. You pass it along to the consumer. And so it is a concern. And I don't want to essentially they're, they're doing it wrong because I can understand their position, but this is where you have to have a conversation with those, those sales organizations or your sales partners and say, Hey guys, we're, we're all, we're all feeling uh, the pain with this. And ultimately though, it, it's the consumer's responsibility to absorb it. If this is a good in service that they elect to engage with right now. And so if, if I, squeeze you, uh, Robin, as the contractor for, I'm not going to accept, you know, an additional higher quote unquote red line. And if so, I'll go down the street uh, and then I put you out of business. Well, now I've got to go down the street anyways, except I've got three or four other sales organizations that are all trying to get in with the same contractor. Now I've got a bottleneck, right? So there is a domino effect and it is, um, it is something that we continue to try to talk to installers about and sales organizations about, about how do we make this work so we can get through this next six, nine, 12 months. And, and by the way, it is six, nine, 12 months where you know the industry comes out stronger. You have stronger partnerships and stronger relationships. Um, and we're not harming the, the contractors to the extent that they're not going to be able to continue to serve the regions and the communities that they do today. Yeah. I think the underlying point though, is that a lot of contractors think that the price squeezes that are happening now, both in labor costs and material costs are extremely short-term and are going to go away fast enough that they can absorb the hit right now. But I think to your point, these are not things that are going away overnight and will affect the installer's cash flow and ability to stay in business and continue to serve their customers. Robin, is there anything you wanted to add to what or build on what Greg said? No, I think he pretty much summed it up, but you know, maybe we can move on to opportunities because we talked a lot about <laughs> the negative. <laughs> 
Um, but, you know, I am seeing, you know, there are definitely opportunities out there for contractors to increase efficiency. So like there are new services out there that can help them reduce costs. So like think about like rooftop delivery services, uh, proposal software where you can outsource your proposal writing, um, new technologies that are available on install day to help you install faster. You know, to a point that Greg made, like I think what we're really lacking in the industry is transparency. And so like, you know, creating lasting relationships with your finance company and your distributors and really being transparent about where you are in terms of your sales. And then, you know, what are the things that they can do for you to make the experience better and to help you sell more and get more throughput in a fa- in a quicker fashion. And, you know, I think that there is an opportunity to help increase the, the perception of the, of our industry by, you know, calling out the bad actors and the people that are doing bad things because ultimately like we've got to like move on and like have like the faith of the consumer that they're actually going to get what they're contracted for. Thanks Robin. Those are all great opportunities to call out. Greg, what opportunities do you see on the horizon for contractors? Rachel touched on a couple, I see Robin touched on a couple of them. You know, I, I think the compartmentalization of, of the process ongoing uh, is actually a good thing, not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and so what I mean by that is having an integrated a proposal tool, leveraging distributors and supply chain and logistics services who are truly subject matter experts. If you are just using a distributor as somebody to buy product from, if you are just using a finance platform as a loan vendor, there, there's a lot to be missed on, right? There, there's, there's a lot of knowledge, there's a lot of assistance, right? And there's a lot of opportunity, whether it's just, you know, we, we seem to be shy about talking about margin and profitability for solar contractors. We want them to be healthy. We want them to have a strong margin. Uh, we talk about how do we help them? Uh, we, you know, dealer fees, product prices, freight. What about the soft costs, right? What about permitting? What about supply chain and logistics and fulfillment? What about maybe you don't need a warehouse with, with three months of, of, of uh, modules because there is a just-in-time fulfillment service, right? That doesn't require you to hire four additional heads, right? That are really volatile to how your business grows. So these are all things I think that are that are opportunities. And, and they're not lost on a lot of these contractors. Um, they're aware of it. They understand it. In some markets, it's been such a continued period of hyper growth that stopping and catching your breath and being able to address some of these, some of these needs has just hasn't been able to be a priority and, and for good reason. I think there's a lot of resources in the space. And there's a lot of resources where people on this call with the companies they work with, you know, are can make available. But you know, I, I think with any type of evolution of an industry, and we're going to see it again, right? It's almost like it's 2013, 2014 all over again. A lot of consolidation uh, at all levels. I mean, I, I've never seen distributors consolidating or mergers and acquisitions or like, you know, in the space, it's happening up and down. And I think ultimately it's going to be a good thing for the industry. I also think that there's going to create a lot of opportunity for contractors to leverage the value that these new, you know, combined entities or these spinoff entities can, can bring to the table. I think there's one more thing that perhaps maybe we haven't touched on. And I think that that's, you know, focusing on the customer post install. I think right now we have, we're like, okay, like we've installed it, we got PTO and we are done, but that's actually not the case. This is a system that's exposed to weather and critters and all kinds of, you know, different events. And so starting to think about like how you plan to service those customers post install, I think is really important because especially from my side of the industry, like 
I see it a lot and these systems do break and there are issues. And so um, we need to do better at, uh, at that as an industry. Completely agree with all the points both of you made. Thank you so much for that. Now let's move on to a new topic. So more and more installers have been talking about considering taking financing in-house. What would you tell anyone considering this move? And what impact do you think it might make on the larger solar market, both short-term and long-term? Who wants to go first this time? I would love to get Robin's take first. Okay. <laughs> love that. I'd say good luck. If I had a dollar for every time I heard about disintermediation, I could retire already. Um, origination platforms do provide a lot of value and um, that capital markets and installers need and want. Europe has kind of already learned this lesson as well. I think that bringing in new entrants, like as we talked about before, is definitely going to compress margins at the finance companies. There are people out there that are looking for do low dealer fee options because they, you know, think and, and want to talk about price transparency, but the installers don't necessarily have the data that the finance companies do in order to properly assess the risk. So how can you as a contractor, if you don't really know your customer's profile, like how can you build an in-house finance option? You need to understand like what risk assumptions are being made for your consumer. What is it by credit band? Like, how are you going to service your portfolio? What about collections and all of these different services cost money. I have heard from a few different installers that they're working with credit unions and local credit unions. It, you know, it kind of gets a little hairy there because they are not as used to this type of asset class, like the loan pals and some of the larger, uh, sorry, good leap, uh, good leap and mosaics of the world. I still call you guys loan pal, but ultimately like it can be done. And I think that it is used as a source of capital for those that don't pass through the other financing options. However, this perhaps comes at a cost because you're not going to get that advanced disbursement like you do with the big lenders. They're going to be much more arduous in terms of the process and the paperwork that they need. You know, I've heard from folks that, that are working with credit unions that, you know, there's a lot more customer sign-offs. There's installer sign-offs. They, they don't get a large majority of the uh, payment until after PTO. And so like for a contractor, that absolutely kills cash flow. And so I would be very, very careful. Make sure that you have the right people and the right skill sets on your team if that's something that you are considering. Thanks, Robin. Greg, do you have anything to add there? I, I think what sometimes gets lost, uh, and this is finance platform, or I'm going to be a distributor or uh, be an installer, is when you have a handful of companies in a space that are really good at something and they make it look really easy, it tends to lend people thinking that they can do it and maybe they can do it for a little bit less, and they can do a little bit better. I, I am still learning things about Good Leap's business that blows me away uh, of just the complexity of it all. And it's not just us, it's Mosaic, it's Dividend, it, it's Sunlight, it's a handful of others. We do what we do, we do it really well. Sometimes if there's a hiccup, the, the, the installer or the contractor is almost appalled because they're not used to hiccups. So whether you're talking about the technology, whether you're talking about the back end, who goes and negotiates your capital for you? How much capital are you going to negotiate for? Because the, the risk associated with the loan is not, it's only one aspect of it. It's like anything else. If I want to buy a pallet of modules from you at Baywa, I'm probably going to pay a little bit more on unit costs than I would if I came back and said, I want to buy a megawatt. So these are all things that, that come into it. And it's, you know, we're seeing it. I think there's something to be said, and I'll go back to what I mentioned about compartmentalization. And we get this question quite often from small installers, 
large installers. Are you guys going to get into the EPC side? Are you guys going to go downstream and become a contractor? You have this platform, you guys can clearly acquire customers. Is this something you guys plan on doing? And the answer is nope. I mean, not in your life. Most of us have done it. We know how hard that side of the business is. We found something that we think we're really, really good at at Good Leap. And that's what we want to do. We want to be really, really good at that. It's hard to be everything to everybody. It's not impossible, but it's really hard. And so we're watching. We're curious to see how, how some of this evolves, uh, whether it's an installer or, or upstream uh, manufacturing, et cetera. But I think that's probably where people look at it and go, hmm, I could do that. It's easy. But they don't see, you know, the the, the four million uh, hamsters behind the curtain that are running on wheels twenty four seven to make it all happen, right? I think one of the things when this topic comes up for me is also who manages compliance and and consumer protection because. I have personally seen financiers kind of act as that intermediary when there is consumer protection concerns or compliance concerns that are at the heart of a dispute between an installer and a contractor. And, you know, if the, if the installer is facilitating their own capital, who is that third impartial third party in the dispute and who, who facilitates consumer protections? And then, you know, if enough misunderstandings or uh, compliance violations hit the 10 o'clock news, what does that do to the solar industry? And what kind of regulatory impacts could that potentially have in the form of more intensive regulatory scrutiny um, and how that could potentially reshape our industry? I, I think you and Robin have both touched on something. I think it's just important to make the distinction. There is a difference between, hey, we are doing our own in-house financing in the manner in which the three of us have just kind of described, or we have partnered with a local credit union, or we partner with an institutional bank where we're going to white label their financing and offer it through us. And, and there is a difference. There's a distinct difference there. Um, some of the same challenges, some of the same issues will you come up across with compliance, right? And, 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 and the legal nuance, we hear about that right? And again, there's typically, you need to be able to pull a lot of capital from a lot of places to be able to make sure that you always have everything you need for the market. So there, there's two two paths here, Rachel, that we're, we're hearing about and we're seeing it. And again, you know, it, it, competition makes us all better. Competition at the, the sake of the industry's reputation or, or, or people not dotting their I's and tossing their, their, their T's and then having a negative impact on the consumer. That's really where, where the concern is, I think, long-term. I think we've also seen a couple of examples of folks over the past, you know, five to, to 10 years that have tried to do that and it, ne- and it didn't really fare very well for them. Um, and they ended up going out of business. So just be super careful mm. and make sure you do your due diligence if that's what you're going to do and that you have the right people on your team. Great advice. Okay. So one question that we've touched on earlier, but I'd love to get in a little deeper to is red lines. I'm wondering if either of you have an opinion on this. You know, as Greg mentioned earlier, and, and I think Robin, you also were touching on this, red lines have not been moving as fast as labor and equipment. Why do you think, uh, I'd like to dig in a little bit more on why you think installers have not been moving their red lines and what installers should be doing to protect themselves against rising costs and, you know, the trends that you're seeing in the industry. Greg, do you want to jump in on this one first? So the first question is, why are we not seeing any movement in red lines? Um, Most of the the contractors I've talked to in Florida, Texas, Nevada, California, Arizona, some of the, the traditionally the stronger markets have all told me the same thing. I'm waiting for the bid contractors to move their pricing and then I will move mine. And the expectation is if, if they move it, sales organizations will say, well, it's happening here. And then they'll be more accepting if it's happening elsewhere. The challenge with that is 
some of the larger installers might be able to absorb it mm -hmm. longer. Some of the other larger installers might be in long-term procurement agreements directed with manufacturers or distributors that they were able to go back and renegotiate, you know, when, when the situation, you know, started to show its face about six, seven months ago, where the smaller folks are, are kind of buying, not necessarily on a spot by basis, but they're buying through distribution. And so they're negotiating and their leverage uh, is, is not quite as strong. So what we hope is that, you know, we're able to uh, encourage contractors and sales orgs to have real conversations about what's happening, what they think the long-term outlook is, um, how can they come to an arrangement where the sales organization feels like it's being treated fairly, the contractor feels like, hey, we're not having to absorb these labor and material increases. And you also, of course, then have a fair market price for the goods and services that you're, you're offering. And those conversations, at least up to this point, have seemed a little slow to take hold. And, and again, you know, when you're waiting for one or two dominoes to fall for everything else to, to, to follow, you, you hope it happens before you've been squeezed so much by some of the pricing increases that you're not able to maintain the business that you previously had. Thanks for that, Greg. Robin, do you have anything to add here? Yeah, sure. Um, I, it's almost impossible to change a red line without the threat of, of losing your sales team. And as Greg said, I think, you know, we have to do this across the industry for it really to make an impact. And everybody has to kind of band together and say, Hey, like we need to do something. It's typically contractually defined. And, you know, unless you're super thoughtful about that in the beginning where you have provisions to where you can go back and make price adjustments, you know, for, market conditions or, or price increases on equipment, then unfortunately you're out of luck. But, you know, in my experience, those with low red lines have higher chances of operational issues because they are operating on such a razor thin margin that it just doesn't work in the long term. So you're filling up your pipeline with like maybe a bunch of junk. And then, you know, you have to make sure that you install all of that stuff, but you know, one, one bad final inspection where you have to go back out and fix a bunch of stuff can turn you into the red, can make that project go into the red. And so if your operations are not dialed in, in every market, you know, it can cost you dearly. And, you know, we've seen this in the past couple of years with some very large integrators with sub $2 per watt red lines, and it did not work for them in the long term. So there are people I know that have already raised their red lines. They're operating um, at a much higher red line than most of their competitors, but they have very fast installs and they are killing it. They're 45 days installed PTO. So you really, as a contractor, need to understand what your true cost stack is and, and also your overhead and, and the installation cost. I just think that, you know, we, we're trying to attract, you know, these sales, these sales groups to, to build the volume, but then we don't have the operational competency in the back to, you know, be able to withhold the margin that they receive on those projects. I had a fairly enlightened uh, owner of a sales organization last week tell me what good is a dollar ninety five red line if the company's not going to be around to install the project. So right. you know it's real, and um, and and the pain is probably coming uh, in Q two as far as product availability. You know we just had an announcement from a pretty large manufacturer of product that fulfills here in the U S. Uh, that they're exiting the business. They're fourteen percent of the residential market now. Their primary partner was a fairly large national player, but they will then go and figure out how they're going to keep their, their product needs. So there is going to be a cascade. And so it's not only going, are we likely expected to see product pricing go up? Um, I think this time, moreover, just because of, you know, true supply and demand economics, but, but also 
it's going to continue to be harder and harder to come by. And so contractors really should be thinking about this and being prepared on how they're going to navigate what I anticipate, at least from a product availability and pricing side, it's going to be a fairly tumultuous, you know, next three to four months. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because if if there are more manufacturers that you know cannot make their commitments, um, they raise price like in the you know without even having the PO executed or delivered yet, which I've heard about that happening too. The contractors have to go back and they have to change their permit package, and so that costs money. And so if you're operating again on a super razor thin red line, you're not going to be able to make it, and you're going to be out of the money before you even build the project. And so, you know, again, we have to be really thoughtful as an industry on, on how we solve that problem. That's such a good point, Robin. I, I was talking to a really, really bright uh, industry mind uh, who was showing me a cost stack uh, sheet that she had put together recently. And <laughs> love that it's a sheet. <laughs> 2,500 bucks sometimes to, for a change order. When you mm-hmm. consider all the adjustments and changes, I don't think that's always recognized. And so again, um, if you're a contractor on the smaller or, or kind of midsize and you're not prepared for what your strategy is to be in Q2 to Q3, it's it's not too late, but you know sooner than later to try to figure out how you're going to navigate that. I, I think that's a critical point to underline is um, just recognizing that we're, we're in for more volatility and making sure that you have the bandwidth to to weather what's coming. And to a point that Greg brought up earlier in the conversation, leverage your finance partners and your distribution partners. We want to help you through this. And we have a lot of uh, subject matter expertise and we have a lot of skin in the game in making sure that you can weather these waters and we want to help you through it. So definitely reach out and talk to us. So I'm getting the flag here from Tom waving his arms at me <laughs> through the chat, telling me that we're coming up on time. So let's, uh, so thank you, Tom, for being, for keeping us honest and pivot briefly to talk a little bit more about the supply chain disruption and also the labor shortages. How are you seeing the labor shortage impact installers? We, we were just talking on how supply chain is going to be a contract or affecting contractors. How do you see the labor shortage playing out in addition to the material shortages or constraints? Robin, do you want to start here? Yeah, sure. Um, in the folks that I talked to, they weren't necessarily seeing labor shortages as much as like more equipment constraints. You know, I think that there is a, a flood of labor into the market, you know, historical uh, service industry folks, roofers, pest control, like they're all like trying to get on the bandwagon of solar. So I feel like we're, we're doing a little bit better on the labor side as compared to the equipment side. However, you know, we are seeing very big constraints on the equipment side, you know, just this week I got notice, you know, of an OEM that, you know, is two months out uh, on production. And so like these things are actually still happening and, you know, and it's getting not better, but maybe perhaps worse. So, you know, I think there's two conflicting schools of thought. Some people, especially some of the OEMs are saying, oh, this is going to be over Q2, Q3 of this year. But I think, you know, more generally, like we're not going to be kind of out of the woods until late 2023. Yeah, I've definitely heard analysts I respect give similar timelines. Greg, how about you? What are your thoughts on how supply chain and labor are going to be impacting uh, installation timelines and installers? Yeah. So on the labor component, I think it's more of a reallocation of labor than a shortage. And and what I mean by that is Robin's right. There's a lot of new entrants into the space. If you're a skilled 
solar installer, if you uh, are an electrician or you're a master electrician, there's opportunities for you to really cement your relationship with your employer right now. And employers are recognizing that. So installers that traditionally had not offered benefits, installers that traditionally had paid by piece instead of hourly. Um, I mean, these, these things are now starting to evolve as these companies evolve and realizing that this is really where we shine. And if you are an EPC, a true EPC that outsources all of your sales activity, this, this is the most valuable component to your entire organization is how well that these individuals as teams perform uh, in the installation side. And so what's happening is um, some companies are getting more aggressive in finding uh, really high quality, uh, highly skilled labor to come bring them on board. So it's not, I'm leaving for 25 cents an hour anymore. It's there's, there's $2 an hour that I'm getting offered over here, plus benefits, plus I'm also getting a week or two paid vacation. So if you, if you think about that, I mean, you know, if you take $2 an hour, right, over the course of a year, I mean, that could be upwards of a 5% increase, right? That's not insignificant, plus paid time off, plus benefits, plus more flexible work schedules. That's what uh, EPCs are having to migrate towards to ensure that they have quality installers and they have installers that are going to stay with them. It's like anything else. Uh, if I get a crew of, of, of three guys or gals together, uh, they only get better with time, right? And that's where you really drive those efficiencies. And so who's at risk are, are companies that either aren't in a position to be competitive um, or maybe don't think that being competitive as, as important. On the, the supply side, the material side, every manufacturer I talk to, every distributor I talk to says, hey, Q2 is going to be rough. Q4 was not ideal. Uh, there were some pain points. Q1 has not been spectacular, but Q2 is going to be rough. That's really where we're going to feel it. And we're likely going to feel it in, into Q3. So there's, there's some real concerns. If you're a platform like Goodleap, our business is predicated on being able to fund loans uh, and turn around and, and, and sell those loans to our cap providers. Uh, if your partners don't have product, uh, they can't complete those loans, right? So there, there's some real concerns. And you know, that's just from one perspective on what this is going to mean. And again, I spend a lot of my time focusing on the small and medium business segment. Those are you know, the, the types of installers that if they're not prepared, if they don't plan, are usually the most vulnerable. So trying to figure out ways and, and get creative and how we can keep them ahead of these challenges or how they can navigate these challenges I mentioned earlier to, to minimize the pain points. You know, there's, there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. There's going to be for a very, very cheap and cheesy pun in this space, sunnier days ahead. <laughs> um, but there's also going to be some bumps in the road to the likes of which that if you're an installer, it's only been in the space for two or three years, you have yet to experience. I also have uh, been hearing about installers citing, you know, having to offer more benefits and higher wages and furthermore contending, especially during the Omicron surge where they had six, seven weeks in a row where part of their staff was continuously out and not able to come into work. And we're wondering if they needed to just over hire to be able to make sure that they could meet their install schedule. And I'm curious to see how that, I mean, things are getting better now on that front, but I'm, I'm wondering what the long-term prognosis is. And I think that it's safe to assume that, you know, our, our manufacturer friends have been facing the same kinds of challenges with worker outages just due to illness. I think yeah. that goes back to red lines too. Maybe it's time to raise your red line. You can attract more sales team with better benefits. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for that discussion, guys. One final question. I know you both talk to a lot of solar contractors every day. Can you share with us what's on their minds? What are their hopes and fears? What are you tracking? Greg, do you want to go first here? Anything spring to mind? I think it's pretty market dependent. 
right now. Uh, I think you have markets like Arizona and Texas that continue to be really robust. And so there's a lot of optimism there. It feels like, you know, where there's a problem, there's a solution. And, you know, Texas is experiencing not the severe weather that they saw a year ago, but uh, again, some unusual weather. And there's been more interest in batteries and storage. Um, so there's a lot of growth there. Same with Arizona, obviously in California and Florida, it's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, there's a lot of business owners that are really hesitant to make further investments into their business until there's some clarity on what's going to happen with some of the legislative policies uh, with those states' respective public utility commissions. Um, a lot of optimism in markets where we don't typically think about Lasor, Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas. These are growing markets with some really strong players um, doing a really good job. So, you know, it really is a mixed bag right now. Um, I think in total, there's still a lot of optimism, uh, but I would say it's cautious optimism with all the things we've talked about today, legislative policy, uh, materials, labor, the potential of the cost of capital uh, going up. But it feels like most people think that the market will continue to win, that the industry will continue to grow and that ultimately the product, right? And, and the end result of that product, electricity savings are still really high on people's minds. And if it makes financial sense on day one, which it almost always does, that the market will continue to grow. Thanks. Robin, what, what are you hearing from contractors? Um, definitely all the things that Greg mentioned. I think there's a couple of additional points as, you know, as most of these folks are starting to think about like, how do we bring more, how do we bring roofing in house so that we don't have to subcontract that out? Because let's be honest, like the, you know, the good roofs have all been cherry picked um, by now. So um, how do you bring in those auxiliary offerings in house and not lose an arm and a leg on that? You know, what's going to happen with the ITC? I think, you know, to Greg's earlier point, the long tail is really trying to figure out like how they incorporate storage into their product offering, but at the same time, like they can't really get the batteries. And so it's like, I know that I need to offer this, but I don't know how I can get it because there's nine month lead times on that. So how does that how does that work with my overall operational process? And then, you know, again, like how to plan for O&M and warranty work. Many of these installers are so busy right now installing new systems that that kind of goes by the wayside. But I really think that it is something that if you are a solar contractor that you should be considering and, you know, determining how you put a reserve in place to make sure that you have enough capital to service your customers. Oh, these are all fantastic insights. Thank you both so much for your time and input today. Um, that's all we have time for. As always, it's great talking to you both. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Great to be here. And thanks to all of you for listening. You could read more about Baywall's financing options on our website. Check out the show notes for more info. And as always, feel free to re reach out to myself, to Greg or Robin with any questions. See you next time. <laughs>